the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Red Tide at Night, Murderous Manatees Delight. The year, the 20 teens, all in the books now. And there were some great books, too. Get a chance to tout your favorites. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk with Larry Correa about his new short story collection, Target Rich Environment, Volume 2. This is the second collection of all of Larry's fiction, and he talks about each of the stories, gives a little backstory on the characters and the creation of the stories, and it's just a great interview. This is part one of a two-part interview, and we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword 2. Now here's the news. Hey, the year and the teens of the 20s are lining up along the main streets of your mind, ready to parade if only you'll let them. So maybe put the good memories up front, like all the great Bane books you read. And get a trio of goodies from the future, because we have a new contest in January that's coming up. New year, new contest. We're ringing in 2020 with a trio of great new books, Gunpowder and Embers by John Ringo, Casey Ezel, and Christopher L. Smith. Penrick's Progress by Lois McMaster Bujold and Frozen Orbit by Patrick Childs. 2019 is in the books, literally. And we'd like to know what your favorite Bane release was for 2019. Let us know and be entered into a drawing to start your New Year's reading off right with signed copies of these three new January Bane titles. So go to the Bane.com website and find the January contest link over there on the left side of the page and or send us an email at contest at bain.com with January contest in the subject line and simply list your three favorite Bain books from 2019, the year that could and did deliver, and get in that drawing for three wonderful signed books to start your new year, a new decade in style. Take a trip down memory lane and get a signed copy of Gunpowder and Embers by John Ringo, Casey Ezel, and Christopher L. Smith. Penrick's Progress by Lois McMaster Bujold, who is a new Cephwa Grand Master, and Frozen Orbit by Patrick Childs. Signed and delivered to your doorstep. This is part one of a two-part interview with Larry Correa. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. One welcome, Larry Correa, to the podcast again. Hey, Larry. Hey, Tony. Thanks for having me on. Well, Larry Correa is the creator of the Wall Street Journal and New York Times bestselling Monster Hunter series with first entry Monster Hunter International and the urban fantasy hardboiled adventure saga The Grim Noir Chronicles with Hard Magic is the first entry there and the saga of the Forgotten Warrior with Son of the Black Sword which we are serializing and almost done with on the podcast right now and the latest entry in that is House of Assassins 
and I think he's working on the final, or the third book, not the final. He is an avid gun user, an advocate who shot on a competitive level for many years. And some of the stories in this anthology that we're going to talk about have to do with that background. Before becoming a full-time writer, he was a military contract accountant and a small business accountant and manager. A lot of accounting in there, Larry. And he lives in Utah with his wife and family. But what we want to talk about today is target-rich environment, which is at booksellers everywhere. This is volume two, stories from the creator of the Monster Hunter International series and the uh, New York Times bestselling author. Um, so you know, maybe we should just talk about the uh, the conception of the two volumes. This is just basically collecting all your short fiction, right, Larry? Is it? It is, yeah. I, I actually write a lot of short stories, and uh, I really enjoy doing that. I mean, I'm primarily known as a novel guy, but I love doing shorts. And uh, I pitched it to Tony Weisskopf a few years ago that I should you know, just do a collection of shorts. I thought that'd be kind of fun. And uh, she said, yeah, sure, that's a great idea. And so I collected them all together, and uh, it was like 250,000 words or something. <laughs> and Tony's like, how about we just make this a multi-volume thing? And uh, so, yeah, the the first Target Rich Environment came out a while ago, and then Target Rich Environment 2, so this is the second half of that, came out uh, just recently. So, uh, yeah, I, I write a lot of short stories. It was basically two two novels, two novels in length worth of short fiction that I had out there, and that's not all of it. It's just stuff that I really was proud of. Yeah, and this one's interesting because it also contains some really cool sort of crossover uh, um, collaborations as well. Yeah, this one was funny because um, I had I had some collaborations in the first one, but I have several in this one. Um, I got to I put in a story that I did with Jonathan Mayberry, uh, which was a lot of fun because Jonathan is a super talented guy. And uh, actually, going through this, it was actually surprising how many of these stories uh, he was the editor for um, different different things he was in. And then I had another uh, uh, collaboration I did with a guy named Steve Diamond, who's a newer writer, and he's Steve is awesome. And this is actually one of my first short stories that uh, we did many many years ago. Um, and Steve now has had his own writing career is taken off. I'm actually writing a book with Steve. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna put that out, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So I, I'll, I'll talk about that later if you want because it's it's a really good story. Um, sure. Yeah, I've got a couple different collabs in here. There was one that I had a lot of fun with, and I got to play in other people's universes, uh, including some really big ones, which was uh, pretty neat. Uh, Aliens is in here. Predator is in here. Um, I got to write Mike Williamson's Freehold, uh, uh, V Wars. Uh, I got a V Wars. V Wars is on Netflix right now. Um, it's a, a new TV show on Netflix, and I wrote for that, so that's kind of exciting. I got a, I got one of my short stories I did for them is in this volume too. So uh, it's kind of actually a lot of really cool stuff. I had to, I had to get out a card copy and look at the, uh, <laughs> look at the title page while I was talking to you because I was trying to remember which story was in which volume. What did you mention somewhere in here that you had the trifecta? You were going for the trifecta of the uh, of eighties. <laughs> well, at least you got three of them, two of them, right? The I've got uh, so so I have a story in here for Aliens, and I have a story in here for Predator, but nothing for the Terminator. If I had the Terminator, I'd have the trifecta of eighties, uh, like big eighties sci-fi. But I got I got two of them. That's pretty good. That's uh, that's pretty good. That's pretty know, good. Yeah. yeah, that was actually that that was the longest holdup on putting together this uh, 
this collection was I had to get permission from the movie people to, to reprint the stories. Um, because that's hey, like, like regular anthologies, the editors are happy. They're like, yeah, sure. Reprint that. That's great. You know, like just make sure, you know, you credit the original editors or whatever, and everybody's all excited to be involved. But when you get to the movie people, boy, it takes a while to, to get all that through the chain of approvals. But, uh, those are both really good stories and I had a lot of fun with those. The, uh, the Predator one's pretty straightforward. I did Samurai versus Predator. So it's the Forest of Death. And uh, back in the, I want to say, 1200s, it's got a little surprise twist to it, but it's Predator hunting Samurai. Yeah, a lot of fun. Uh, so kind of a classic-type Predator story, but then a little twist at the end. And then, uh, but the Aliens one, I got to write about the, uh, <laughs> I did a really weird story for that. Very atypical uh, I did the story of the M41 pulse rifle. Uh, so if you're a gun nut at all, you know that like that the gun in the movie Aliens is like the coolest thing in it, right? Um, and, uh, all the 80s gun nuts, we love this gun. And so when they're k- taking pitches for these alien stories for a, new, a collection or a new anthology, and everybody else is like, I want to do aliens, you know, colonial marines versus aliens on such and such planet, or I want to do this ship battle of aliens aboard. It's like, they get to me and like, I want to write a Tales of the Gun episode about the history of the Pulse Rifle. <laughs> and everybody was like, what? And the editor was like, uh, okay. <laughs> if there's anybody other than Larry, we would say, no, that's stupid. But uh, I'm actually on a TV show. I'm a regular on a TV show, a couple seasons of a TV show that's like that on the Outdoor Channel, uh, Joe Montana's Gun Stories. And I'm one of the one of the... the the talking head uh, commentary people on that show. And so it was a chance for me to do that for the history of a science fiction gun. And that was just too awesome not to do. So what's the name of that story? I'm trying, it's, it's not instruments. Uh, Episode episode 22, because it's the Uh, 22nd episode of of this TV show in the future. that doesn't exist. (laughs) I I can't remember what I called the the TV show. Uh, It was like history of the weapon or tale of the weapon or something like that. But the takeoff on the old History Channel show, Tales of the Gun. But then, uh, like, so Gun Stories is the show that I'm on. That's the outdoor channel. You, you kind of frame, I mean, the fun thing, it's a gun, it, it's it's written as a as a gun review, which is, you know, it's like this is the, which is really cool. You kind and of, I, and, and I bring in all these, like, colonial marines to tell stories of using it in combat and all these various things. And uh, I, whenever I write in somebody else's IP, uh, whenever I write in somebody else's universe, I do my homework. So I, like, read everything that was official I could, stuck in references to everything I could, you know, tried to, like, not screw it up. One thing I learned about the Aliens movies continuing uh, continuity is basically every new director that's come along, he has, like, completely ignored all the previous continuity. <laughs> so I'm, like, writing this story. I'm like, how did this actually go down? Oh, there's like four different versions of, of what the actual history is. And uh, so I just ran with what I could there. But uh, no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that one. And the, that that sort of documentary style to, is really fun. Um, and you uh, several of these stories you frame kind of interestingly. Like you'll have uh, a guy sitting there talking to us at the beginning and telling us the story of you know, and he's a he's a rough and tough guy, and he, but he's finally spieling about his life. Um, trying to think of maybe uh, Ratul, that's one of those. 
Oh, that's a that's one of now that's a story I'm really proud of. That's one of the newer ones. Uh, that's in this collection because it's set in my um, saga of the Forgotten Warrior. That's the one with uh, uh, the first book's uh, Son of the Black Sword, which you guys are serializing, and then um, House of Assassins came out. And then I just finished Destroyer of Worlds, the third one. I uh, I did Testimony of the Traitor Retool. Uh, for the release, I wrote that for the Bayon website for the release of um, House of Assassins. And at the time, I had been listening to a whole bunch of audiobooks of Robert E. Howard's collected works. And I love Robert E. Howard, big fan. And one of the things he did when he was, one of, one of the tools he used, I, I, I thought was interesting, something I didn't do much, was the whole story would be kind of like a guy sitting around the campfire telling the story. like just So it's just a narrated story. It's just one guy telling his life story like around the campfire. And there was a bunch of stories like that that Robert E. Howard did. So I was doing this story about one of the supporting characters in uh, Saga of the Forgotten Warrior. And I was like, you know what? I want to do that. I want to try that. So basically this story is just a tool who, pivotal, pivotal character in the series, um, because he's the guy that trained the main character to be this, you know, uh, basically fantasy judge dread law enforcing badass. But at the same time, he has a secret life where he's a religious fanatic in a, in a world where religion is completely banned, right? And uh, it's completely illegal. And so this guy is, on one hand, a law enforcement agent and a terrorist at the same time, basically, is his character. So I got to write his life story, and it's just him telling the events of his life leading up to the end of it, uh, which we actually see in the books. And, uh, oh, my gosh, I love that one. That one came out so good. <laughs> Maybe go into it a little bit, talk about the world um, and what it means to be that, that the fact that, um, you know, that it's, it's like the worst heresy of all to, to believe there are gods in this world. And also, it's the ocean is bad. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Ocean, in this world, basically, demons reigned from the sky a thousand years ago. Mankind, they basically destroyed the world. This is a kind of a post-apocalyptic story. And mankind shoved the demons back into the sea. And ever since then, man lives on dry ground and demons live in the ocean. So basically, in this, story, in this series, the ocean is hell. It's the hell equivalent. Like, no one goes to the ocean. Only unlucky bastards live by the sea. And uh, so Ratul is this guy who comes from this land where uh, there's this all-encompassing tyrannical law administered to all the, all the land, and this group called the Protectors are who enforce it. And Ratul is a protector, and he is a badass, right? Um, and he comes across this guy who's a religious fanatic, basically. It's anybody who practices religion in the secret is a fanatic and is a super legal Penalties always death. Comes across this guy in his uh, as, a, as a young protector, and he's going to execute him. But this guy has a collection of books, uh, old, old religious books, including one of like a book of prophecies, including a prophecy that's straight up about this moment in time, <laughs> about Ratul specifically. And uh, basically, it's like all this prediction of like like who this guy is and so this ancient book about this guy now when he comes across it kind of has a crisis of faith and except that his faith was in the law not in anything religious so it's the beginning of Ratul's journey as a kind of secret 
facilitator of this underground religion and how he's the guy that kind of brings all the main characters in the series together, or puts them on their path uh, that we see in the main books. But the dude is a hard, hard guy. <laughs> and so uh, writing this is a lot of fun. Because um, he actually, like, I got to reveal to him, like, like, basically, like, he was a sensitive kid. He was an artistic, uh, sensitive kid. And his family just ships him off to this hyper-militant group of warrior monks, you know, for, for, the, for the family good. And uh, I don't know, I just, I had a, had a lot of fun with that story. I, I, like I said, I got to write it Robert E. Howard style of uh, having somebody look back on their life and tell the story. Yeah, and the character is it, it's cool. It's because he's he is drawn into this despite his not wanting to be. Um, it just like and so you believe it even more because he's he's this reluctant uh, convert, which is kind of cool way of of. Yeah, because when we see him in the actual series, when, when he's still alive in the actual series, it's either as you know, head of this hyper-religious or hyper-anti-religious order, or we see him from the perspective of other people as a secret fanatic. And so this is kind of like the story was a way for me to kind of like bridge the two and yeah. show what he really was. He's also very good at killing people with, with weapons. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This guy is so lethal. And I love that because like his background, I mean, like as a kid, he was a dancer. I mean, that was his thing. He just wanted to... Like, he was very graceful. He was just a graceful, graceful, gentle kid. And they just took him and they said, hey, well, you know, that actually translates fairly well over to sword fighting. <laughs> yeah, he is an incredibly pragmatically lethal individual. And uh, what was the name? what's the name of the third book you just finished in, the, in that series? Uh, it's called Destroyer of Worlds. Yep, I sent that in to Tony Weisskopf and Jim Minns. Uh, I emailed that in like last Friday, in fact. So now I'm just waiting back for edits. But yeah, very excited for this one. And it's coming out October, October 2020. Well, let's talk about uh, another story. The the head story, the lead story here is Tokyo Raider, um, which is really cool. Oh. Uh, <laughs> well, um, you you tell it. <laughs> set it up. It's really fun. Okay, so this is set in my Grim Noir universe. And all these stories here are they're written in a way that if people haven't read the, the books, they'll be fine. Um, but Tokyo Raider, it takes place uh, in my Grim Noir universe. And so that's the universe where basically magical power started to appear amongst the population about the 1850s. And it's an alternate history that kind of diver diverges off from there. So the first series is very this kind of hard-boiled, noir, pulp, 1930s adventure story. Um, but in that, the bad guys are Imperial Japan. And one of the people we meet during this uh, is a guy named Toru Tokugawa, who basically winds up being the supreme military commander of uh, the Imperial Japan. And he's kind of a, kind of a badass. I mean, Toru's <laughs> a tough, tough guy. And in the series, he's like kind of a good guy and kind of a bad guy, depending on where you're sitting. And... Uh, one of the other main characters is a guy named Jake Sullivan, who is this kind of hard-boiled detective character who is a war hero. But him and Toru were kind of frenemies. They're friends and enemies. Well, this story takes place 20-something years later, and uh, it's about a guy named Joe Sullivan. It's Jake Sullivan's son, 
Um, and he is, at the time, the sixth place in the 1950s. He's a United States Marine. He's got magical powers like his dad and that he's able to manipulate gravity um, in various ways. And he's like his dad. He's also very, very smart and very good at what he does. So Toru Tokugawa, um, Japan is at the time, is he's a supreme military leader in Japan, and the Japanese are fighting a war against the Soviets. And uh, so we're not friends. We're enemies <laughs> with the Japanese, but this is a personal favor. They request this young Marine lieutenant uh, to be assigned, the American to be assigned to the Imperial Japanese Navy to drive a giant fighting robot to fight Stalin's giant super monster. So it's a kaiju monster fight versus giant robot, 1954. Um, so basically, think giant super communist Godzilla is attacking Japan. And uh, they have built a giant super robot to fight it. Only they need someone who has the ability to, to manipulate gravity to drive the robot because it's so big. You know, they need something that can overcome the square cube law, basically. And uh, so everybody they've tried to, do, to use it has died. It's fried their brain and they've died. So they need the best gravity manipulator they can find, which unfortunately is this American guy. <laughs> so they work out a deal to borrow him. And... It's fun, and the whole story is basically this giant robot fight uh, across Tokyo, and it is awesome. Kind of reminds me of certain Japanese movies that I've seen. Well, okay, so put it this way. So in the Grimoire universe, 1933, in the, in the book Spellbound, the second book in that series, I have a scene with a giant monster rampaging across Washington, D.C., where climbs up the side of the Washington Monument is getting attacked by biplanes. What takes place in 1933, which is the year King Kong came out? This one takes place in 1954, which is the year Godzilla came out. <laughs> so, yeah, the, if you're going to write historical, if you're going to write alternate history, you've got to, like, get little hat tips in there uh, for stuff like that. You just, you just kind of have to. That's half the fun of writing alternate history. Yeah, and there's also, of course, uh, a mechanical giant that fights him. <laughs> Which is another trope. Little, little, little fun things in there too. Like I, I don't want to give too much away, but there's one scene where where this very proud Japanese general is watching this great battle unfold. Like the the pride of Japan's technology, super robot. I thought to throw down with this communist monster from hell, and they're squaring off across Tokyo Bay. And he's like, this is like such a proud moment. It's like this is a perfect warrior's moment. It's like bringing a tear to his eye. And then all of a sudden, the American guy who's driving, they start playing the American national anthem over the loudspeakers. <laughs> and he's like, oh, ruins. Yeah, it's interesting that he is, he's, he's half Japanese, right? I mean, our, our, is it Jake or no? Yeah, so he's half Japanese because of his, his mom. I mean, I... I I don't want to give too much spoilers, but the books have been out long enough. I can give spoilers. But Jake Sullivan winds up marrying uh, uh, another character, uh, Akane, and uh, or Lady Origami, as she's known in most of the books. And uh, she's kind of a badass in her own right. What's well, Joe's mom? And so he's a U.S. Marine in the 1950s who's half Japanese. He's a Japanese mother. And that makes him a definite oddball and an outcast. And 
kind of untrusted by his peers. And so we're about to go to, you know, we're thinking we're going to go to war with Japan again. And so everybody's like, well, we might have to frag the new guy. <laughs> and so he's already not, uh, not trusted by his peer groups because of his ethnicity. Um, but yeah, no, so he, yeah, but his dad, I, once again, trying not to give too much away, but Jake Sullivan, if you've read the original series, is the baddest there's ever been. He is the toughest guy there's ever been. And his son definitely tries to live up to that. So, very, very cool character. Yeah, and also, yeah. I'm writing another trilogy of Grim Noir novels set in the 1950s. So I've written a, written a few short stories that are kind of previews uh, and kind of character experiments for the next trilogy that I've got planned. And so, yeah, Joe, Joe is one of the main characters of the new trilogy. Well, let's uh, talk about... A, a the third story in the anthology, which is Shooter Ready. This is from Galactic Games, and this seems to to me that it must have a lot to do with, with your background as a competitive, like, uh, what were you, three-gun, shoot them as you run along kind of competitor? I was. Yeah, back in the day, I uh, I was uh, I was not once. I, I was pretty dang good. I, I shot a lot of competition. Um uh, it, three gun is where you use rifles, pistols, and shotgun, and it's fast. It's very fast paced. It's actually fairly athletic. Um, you're doing a lot of running across country, basically from array to array of shooting different targets. It's very stressful, and then like you shooting long range with a rifle, then you have to switch and shoot a pistol, and then all of a sudden you're you know running along shooting shotgun targets and clay pigeons out of the air. Um, it's a lot of fun, and uh, so I got invited to be in this anthology called Galactic Games, where it's about sports in the future, basically. There are sports stories in sci-fi settings, and the thing is, I'm not much of an athlete other than three. <laughs> I am terrible at every other sport. I'm, ter- I'm, I'm a big guy, and I'm ter- but I'm terrible at football. I'm terrible at basketball. I uh, never played at any sort of serious level on anything, so the only sport I know is competitive shooting. So I thought, okay, let's do a competitive shooting in the in the future. Let's do a sci-fi story. And actually, it lends itself really super good. Um, so I basically, the way I set it up is uh, sci-fi where it's, uh, you know, man is colonizing the stars. You're colonizing various worlds. Gun control has utterly failed because of the introduction of, you know, 3D printing technology has gotten so good that gun control is just a joke. So at that point, they've given up on it. Plus... We're settling these planets where sometimes there's really, really awful, nasty wildlife. So guns have proliferated, and it's like sorry, proliferated. I can't talk. Um, and so most colony worlds, uh, shooting is just part of life, and everybody's heavily armed. And uh, and so what happened is this, I'm writing this story about this guy in a world where three gun has become this super popular intergalactic sport. And guys travel on these on the circuits, all these different worlds with different conditions. And you know, high gravity, low gravity. They shoot in zero g. Um, and it's also you know, medical technology's gotten better. So there's basically now post humans are surprisingly advanced. You know, genetically modified or engineered human beings. Also, there's artificial life forms, and these things start competing too. And so I'm telling the story of a guy who's uh, at the end of his career because he's the last pure human shooter. Uh, he's the last competitive human 
And it's kind of, so it's basically it's a sports story. It's kind of an end of an era sports story is what it is. This guy used to be the champ, uh, but now he's competing in a world with guys who are like super modified, you know, human 2.0, or he's fighting against uh, machines that are basically, you know, one robot SWAT teams of how, you know, they're just like, and they process stuff so much faster and move so much faster than a human can. And so, yeah, I got to draw upon my real life stuff and I got to get some really cool sci-fi stuff. And I really, really enjoyed this one. I, I had a lot of fun writing it. I think it came out really good. And overall, it's kind of just a, a poignant, a poignant sports story, but Hey champ, it's time to hang it up. Hey, you know, it's time to give it up. You had a good run. So, Thoroughly like that one. Yeah, but he's he's also. I mean, it's also the day when uh, when you just have to be enhanced, which makes you uh, sort of think about the present day where things are are headed. So. Well, so one of the things I did is I so I have this guy uh, who, who uh, he's a, like a real fan, right? But he is a post-human multi-bazillionaire he this guy owns planets right and uh he he so he had he's a sports fan though so he had madison square garden taken down bit by bit and reassembled on his home planet okay he's that that big of a sports fan and you know but he's coming along and he's kind of telling his he's talking to the our guy shane who's the shooter who's the competitor about how his just perspective like the glory of the sport and uh, and why it's so interesting. He goes back and he's talking about like 22nd century Earth and what killed the NFL uh, on 22nd, you know, because he's like, do you remember what the Super Bowl was? And he's like, yeah, my grandpa talked about the Super Bowl, you know, cause back in the olden days. And uh, But what it was is like what killed sports was the NFL had these rules. Like you had to be a human to compete. And uh, so they, they, they couldn't do steroids. They weren't supposed to do drugs. So it was just boring old humans. But then other leagues started to come along and compete where they allowed cyborgs, augmented humans, all the steroids you want. And it was like what killed it was the spectacle was gone. It's like why watch regular old boring humans collide when you can watch superhuman titans collide and guys with cheetah genes out there running at 60 kilometers an hour you know, catching 100-yard passes, you know? And so it's like it's, like, it's boredom. And it's like, it's like people people want to see that Titans collide. They want to see that spectacle. They want to see the ultimate. And I don't know. It was, just, it was, a, it was a really fun story. So I got to do some different perspectives. And I think it came out pretty good because, like I said, I am not a jock. <laughs> I, yeah, I yeah. shoot real good. That's it. <laughs> but it's, uh, I mean, it's something you know. That's for sure. Um I don't know. We talked a little bit about Three Sparks is the is the Predator universe story, right? Um, is there anything else you want to say? But it's kind of a it has a nice trick ending, but we of course don't want to give that away. Yeah, but, so uh, that one I can't. So basically, that one is uh, think you know Predators versus Samurai, and it it really lends itself well because if you look at all the Predator mythos, they like to hunt dangerous game, and uh, and so I got to draw upon you know Japanese history and myth. Uh, I went back to the founding of the Shogunate, and it's basically I had, like, the reason, like, uh, there's that forest of death uh, in Japan. The reason it's the forest of death, the reason it got that reputation, was the predator. <laughs> and if you think about dangerous games, you get this really super proud warrior society, and you got 
basically to them it's a demon. It's an oni is living in this forest and it's battling samurai. And the three sparks is because there's the three glowing dots would appear on somebody before they got blown to pieces by like lightning. Is, is their understanding. And so basically it's the story of all these guys, you know, all these samurai are just lining up to go take a shot at the demon. And the shogun's like just feeding guys in the meat grinder. He's like, all right, you go kill it then. This is embarrassing. <laughs> we, we have a demon terrorizing us. You got, you got to kill it. So the guy that comes in to take it on, is a, he's basically uh, not an honorable dude. He is a very pragmatic, get the job done at all costs. Not a lot of show. He's a hunter. That's his, he, that's his guy's thing is he is a hunter. So it's hunter versus hunter. And he kind of come in and he analyzes, okay, this is how the demon is working. This is how the Oni is killing people. He seems to be targeting, you know, the biggest, most dangerous guys. I'm going to not be dangerous. I'm going to not look dangerous. And then I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to strike from ambush. Don't want to give too much away, but I, I really am pleased with how it came out. So yeah, I get drafted to write samurai drama a lot. <laughs> Well, there's an, there's another uh, samurai story in here, which is the Mike Williamson uh, universe one, Musings of a Hermit, I think. Well, that one is so it's set in the Freehold uh, Freehold universe, and the, and the anthology is about following the history of the sword that shows up in the Freehold sto- novels, but that's in several hundred years in the future on a colony world. But it's this it's this samurai sword, and so Mike Williamson wanted to do us uh, an anthology where we would follow the sword from from its from when it's created down through history, out into space. Uh, I mean, like Mike Massa wrote about it in World War II, right? And, and then out mm-hmm. in the future. And so it, was, so it was actually a really cool idea for an anthology. Well, I, like I said, I get drafted a lot for samurai drama because everybody knows I'm a samurai nerd. I love that stuff. I, I mean, and it's not like this is not necessarily the most historically accurate, but it's definitely like a walking Akira Kurosawa movie. That's what I'm going for. <laughs> I love those so much. And... Um, so I got asked to write about this sword. Uh, I think that was the second story in the anthology, so it's pretty early in the history. But I wrote about this guy um, who's just a hermit. He's a former samurai. He just wants to be left alone. And we kind of get a little glimpse of his backstory of why. Uh, but the reason I wrote it this way is because Freehold, if you're familiar with it, it's a very libertarian sci-fi. It's very much people who just want to be free to do their own thing. And the universe just won't let them. And so Freehold is this planet that basically the UN, uh, the space UN, is trying to force it in line. He's like, you've got to obey all the rules and all the agreed-upon societal stuff from Earth. And it's about a war between them and Earth where, where it's just Earth is trying to force them to toe the line. So I thought about this, this is a very rules-bound society. Very, you know, they're very, you follow, you're the property of somebody else. Um, and so I'm writing about a guy who just goes against the grain. And so, yeah, it predates the, the story by thousands of years on a totally different culture, different planet, but it's that little spark of just willful disobedience where it's a guy who just does not want to fall in line in a society where everybody has a place. And so he's a hermit, and he gets roped into somebody else's problems, and he, has, he comes up against, like, some tax collectors throwing their weight around, and he's just had enough. <laughs> and yeah, he's an old hermit now, but dude really knows how to kill people. <laughs> yeah, if only we had him around in April <laughs> these days. <laughs> yeah, this dude. Yeah, this dude does not. 
he, he was a man. He's I sort of got to write about a guy who's just pushed far, basically, and uh, reluctant, not a hero, but reluctantly drawn into being a hero. So the Mayberry related stories. One of them I think you wrote, and one of them you wrote with uh, Jonathan Mayberry. The or no wait, is the V Wars was an anthology he edited. Yeah, so V-Wars is Jonathan's creation. Um, that's a universe he created, and it's a shared world where he created this this idea and then invited a whole bunch of different authors to write it in. And there's a series of books, uh, and I have I have stories in a couple of the volumes, uh, and it's now a show on Netflix, which I'm actually really excited for, because if it goes multiple seasons, hopefully my guy will show up. <laughs> I wrote a bad guy character that I'm really proud of, and I'd like, I'd love to see him show up show up in a TV show as a recurring villain. I, that'd be awesome. Um, so I, I wrote I, uh, the first one I did is in the first volume of Target Rich Environment, and the second one I did is in volume two. Uh, basically, I'm writing about a green beret vampire. So it's a uh, green beret that's turned into a vampire, uh, and you know, green berets are a force multiplier. That's their job is they go out and they get the local indigenous forces and they train them up to be a real fighting force. And in this world, vampires are the indigenous force that is that has appeared amongst the population. And so it's a war between mankind and vampires. Uh, and well, this guy has been trained his entire life as a human being to overthrow governments, to take indigenous forces and make them into like, you know, a real danger. Turns into a vampire, and so this guy is now training vampires to be a real fighting force and to overthrow governments. Uh, so great villain. Uh, those, those, those are kind of a blast to write. I think one of the scarier bad guys I've ever come up with. Um, yeah. and he's not really that There's, bad of a guy. He's just his skill set. Yeah. There's some like father son dynamic in this one, right? There was one is not a vampire. Well, no, it's based upon a good friend of mine. So what is, is one of my, one of my technical advisors, a good friend of mine, uh, is a, is a, is a, a lieutenant colonel, retired uh, a Green Beret. He was a battalion commander for a special forces group. Um, dude is total badass. And uh, so when I was writing this first story for Jonathan, I said, I want to write a, I want to write a Green Beret turned vampire. And what would you do? And so he starts telling me what he would do. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the scariest thing I've ever heard. And I only put half of it in the story because I didn't want to give crazy people any ideas. <laughs> it was just like, damn, dude, you're, you guys are terrifying. It's a great compliment for him. But, but while talking to him, it was interesting because he starts. His son is a Green Beret. Uh, his son, his son is Special Forces in real life, and uh, has followed in his dad's footsteps. And it's, I know his son since he was a little kid. He's a great guy, and so I started writing this story about this you know Green Beret turned vampire, and it's kind of a family business. Well, I had you know what I'm going to introduce. He has a son. He has a human son who is one of the people on put on one of the Special Forces units that their job is to fight vampires. So I do have a family angle to this. And so it's basically the son uh, is out there, you know, killing vampires, and his dad is a vampire training vampires to fight humans. And so there's this the dynamic where the son really wants to pop his old man. And, uh, yeah. and they may run up against each other in this story.
That was part one of a two-part interview with Larry Correa. Part two will be available next time in the new year on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 49 Keita saw it all, and Gruvidal shattered like a piece of glass. Only instead of falling, the pieces seemed to hang there, suspended between the two frozen combatants, but time stalled only briefly, because there was a blinding flash and a roar of thunder that filled the whole world. Keita had struggled up through the fists and boots of the angry villagers until he could watch. The Forgotten must have given him the strength to do so because it was his duty to be a witness. They'd been trying to pull him down when the burning wind rolled through them and knocked the workers down. The entire village was plunged into a searing, furnace-like heat. The ice immediately began to melt and run. Where Ashok had been standing, there was a black spot floating in the air, almost like a hole had been burned into the world. But then it slowly faded, leaving nothing but a painful sting in the eye. After the thunder, it was eerily still. A hushed silence fell over the entire village. The painful heat began to dissipate. Slowly, the Somsak warriors and terrified villagers lifted their heads, trying to figure out what had just happened. The two combatants had been flung apart. Ashok was lying there, unmoving. Their demonic champion had gone down as well. But slowly, the demon rose. His helmet had been swept away, revealing the evil beneath. That face may have belonged to a man once covered in scars and intricate tattoos, but there was a new art drawn on it in corruption. Beneath the ink and skin was a map of twisting, pulsing veins, white and thick with pus. The horrible being turned toward his army, lifted his arms triumphantly and shouted, I am victorious, Somersack! He pumped his gauntlets in the air, Somsack! The warriors didn't cheer. Instead, they recoiled in horror when they saw the forked tongue roll past their champion's jagged black teeth. 
Keita was more concerned for Ashok. Pushing through the stunned workers, Keita stumbled toward the bridge. The Somsak didn't try to stop him. On the other side of the ditch, Ashok still wasn't moving at all. He didn't appear to be breathing. Then Keita heard the voice. The path is set. The voice was difficult to describe, and he'd already heard it many times. It wasn't in your ear, but rather inside your head, crashing about the interior of your skull as subtle as a drum. When the prophet spoke to you with the voice of the gods, there was no way not to hear it. My faithful servant has been sacrificed. And now the voice was speaking to everyone in Jarlang. Most of the villagers were cowering and covering their ears, though Keita knew from experience that would do them no good. Nothing could keep out the voice. Even the terrifying Somsak were confused and afraid. Heed this warning. Soon the demons will rise from the sea. The rising clouds of steam began to coalesce into a gigantic man-shaped figure that loomed over the square. Warrior and worker alike recoiled in terror. The sons of Ramroan must defeat them. The voice had never taken form before, yet beneath the glowing fog was a single person, tiny in comparison to the giant. Today's testimony has been sealed in blood. The prophet stood inside the glowing giant. Hooded head bowed, swaying and arms dangling, most certainly unaware of the cryptic words being channeled through her. Keita felt both envy and pity when the trance of the gods fell over her. She would remember nothing afterward. It was the keeper's job to record and remember. There will be much more before all the world remembers what has been forgotten. The glow faded. The fog collapsed and rolled away, leaving Thera standing there alone. Keita's sense of duty told him to stop and write down the words, but he kept pushing toward the bridge instead. It had said the faithful servant had been sacrificed, and Ashok appeared to be dead. Keita looked back toward his prophet. Poor Thera was snapping out of her trance, looking around, bewildered, confused why she found herself with an entire village suddenly staring at her, shocked and afraid. Thera lifted her hands imploringly toward the cowering villagers. Please, don't be scared. Witchcraft! A worker screamed. Thera seemed to shrink, instinctively making sure her hood was up, hiding the scar from where the bolt from the heavens had smote her. The voice had lived inside her ever since. Her house had been so terrified that they tried to hurl her into the sea. She'd spent most of her life running, constantly pursued by the Inquisition. It was Ratul who had recognized Thera for what she really was. She is the prophet, the chosen of the forgotten, Keita shouted. Then something caught his eye. High above, vultures were circling. A few of them were descending far too rapidly, growing larger and larger until Keita realized each was as big as a man. They were heading straight for his prophet. Thera, look out! But as Keita watched, horrified, 
the unnatural things landed, encircled her, and attacked. Chapter 50 The little castless blood scrubber boy looked up from the red puddle. He was on his knees on the cold stone floor of the main hall of Great House Vidal. There were two objects lying before him. At different times, both had been his most precious possession in life, mighty Angruvadal and a humble wash bucket. He looked at his hands, a child's hands, tiny, torn, and rubbed raw from pushing a rag and wringing it out hundreds of times. Then he looked up to see that there was a lone figure watching him, dressed in a suit of armor, far different than any he'd ever seen before, yet somehow still familiar. There should be nothing after death. The law promised nothing. This is not nothing. Your law was an attempt to make things right, and in exchange it made many more things wrong, the armored man said. Besides, you're not dead yet. Damn it. The man walked over. His armor made no sound because it was made of something not metal, but better. The puddle of blood rolled away from the man, as if it were a living thing, afraid to stain his boots. He knelt next to Angruvadal and nonchalantly picked up the sword. Surprisingly, the sword didn't punish him for it. The stranger was a handsome man, and as he examined the perfect weapon, a warm smile formed on his face. Hello, old friend. Are you the next bearer? He chuckled. There is no one next. I was the first, and you are the last. The last? Have I dishonored it so? On the contrary. You have fulfilled the measure of its creation. Now that he was closer, things seemed clearer. The armor was familiar because the design and color were similar to what the protectors used, only this was far too smooth, too perfect to have come from the hand of man. It hadn't been forged, but grown. The style of the Order's armor was nothing but a poor copy based on this and it had been that way since before the Age of Kings. Do you know why Angruvadal picked you, Fall? No. Me either. But that's what it was always meant to do. I suppose we'll all have to find out together. Are you the forgotten? I've been forgotten, by most. But I'm not the forgotten. I'm a ghost of a memory recorded on a weapon. My name is Ramroan, and you must finish what I started. Ashok woke up furious with a jagged black shard embedded in his heart. Somehow he knew that it was all that remained of the once great Angruvadal, and it hadn't killed him only because it loved him. He could feel it there, almost as if it was molten, purifying him with fire. Reaching up with one shaking hand, he shoved two fingers deep into his chest wound, probing. The shard scorched his fingertips when he found it, and he had to pull his hand away. 
He was lying in a puddle of melting ice. The air burned, hot as the capital in the summer. He saw Nadan Somsak revealed as an abomination, screeching at his troops to obey, and he knew that this was not yet done. Struggling to stand, he found that one leg was still pathetically weak, so he dragged it along behind. There was a crossbow bolt sticking out of his stomach. He thought about ripping it free so he'd have something to stab Nadan with. But he couldn't risk tearing out his guts. He didn't have time to shove them back in. Ashok saw something that would make a passable weapon and scooped it up along the way. Nadan Somsak turned just in time to see that Ashok was still alive. But then Ashok took the antler that had broken off the Somsak's helmet and drove it deep into Nadan's throat. White pus sprayed out. Surprised, Nadan tried to push him away, but Ashok twisted it deeper, rocking the antler back and forth until he found the spine. Ashok pried the vertebrae apart. Paralyzed, Nadan dropped to his knees. There was fear in his eyes. Ashok had known fear once, in the river, but never again. You broke my sword. Ashok drew back one arm and smashed his fist into the Somsak's face with everything he could muster. He hit him again, and then kept on hitting him. Fat droplets of blood, both red and white, flew into the air as Ashok pounded Nadan's face into meat. An eye ruptured, sharp teeth sliced into his knuckles, but Ashok kept striking him, following Nadan as he sank to the ground, determined to flatten his skull and beat his brains out. Every bone in Nadan's face was broken, but Ashok kept beating him until the flesh of the cheeks ripped open. Ashok could see the demon's tongue there, twisting about, an independent creature, a foul parasite. So he quit striking Nadan long enough to take hold of his face, break his jaw open far enough that he could reach inside, then grabbed the thrashing evil bit. It squirmed in his grasp, but he squeezed and ripped it out of Nadan's head. The tongue came free with a sick, tearing noise. Ashok stood up, tottering, his injured leg nearly failing him, but he managed to stay upright. The tongue was still in his hand, wiggling about like some grotesque parody of a worm. He moved away from Nadan's twitching body, threw the tongue on the ground and stumped it flat beneath his boot. It ruptured like a fat slug. Soaked in blood, the black heart glared at the many Somsak watching him along the bridge. Who else will contend with me? Come and finish it. The Somsak warriors backed away. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast, thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the end product of an orc and oni mating orgy, raised by ninjas and taught to cook by very exacting and kind of mean chefs to be his personal assistant and cook assassin. Plus thanks and praise to Larry Correa, author of Target Rich Environment, Volume 2, 
Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars in 2020.